Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science back in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, Susan Fox. Hello! This is our 100th episode, the 100th episode of the Event Horizon. Our guests today are appropriate for this wondrous occasion. We are speaking to John and Bijo Trimble. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank, thank you. you. So, um, for our listeners, uh, if you are not familiar with who they are, John and Bijo Trimble are the people who are probably most identifiably responsible for the third season of Star Trek making it back onto the air. The first successful write-in campaign to a television network was the third season worth it. Well, you know, well, yeah, that's up to you to decide. Yes, but it accomplished one very important thing. If a show hadn't had three seasons back in the 60s, it would not have been syndicated. Uh-huh. And so because Star Trek had that third season, it went into syndication after the show went off the air. And it's never been out of syndication since. That's amazing. It's being shown somewhere in the world. In in some language. In some language. (laughs) It's it's been translated into more than a dozen different languages. uh, How about Klingon? Except that one, I think. Dr. Sean, that color paging Dr. Sean. I think you guys need to do like a whole episode. (laughs) I wonder if somewhere out there there isn't an episode done in Klingon. Let's check on that. Yeah, we should. (laughs) That would be very funny. So um, let's start at the beginning. How did you, uh, what was it that drew you into this in the first place when, when, uh, uh, when it was discovered that Star Trek wasn't going to make it for a third season? Well, okay, let's yeah. go back and get a little history here. We first met Gene Roddenberry in 1966 at the World Science Fiction Convention in Cleveland. Uh, we were we were at that time running the art shows for the conventions, and Bijo that year had had the futuristic fashion show sort of foisted off on her when the girl who was going to run it uh, got sick with appendicitis. Mm. So she handed her some three by five cards and said, "Here." <laughs> so everything was fine. I'd rounded. I mean, I informed all of the models and so on. We get to the convention, and one of these officious little people who love to boss people around because it's the only thing they know how to do comes up to me and says, you have exactly an hour, no more than that, 
And when you're done, you know, then you're done. We're cutting you off. And I'm thinking, I've got 20 costumes. We're all amateurs. We're going to do this in an hour. Yay. And, uh, you know, he just kept babbling at me. And I said, fine, get out of my face and go away. So about half an hour into rehearsals, he comes back and says, oh, um, we promised this big Hollywood producer he could put uh, three costumes into your fashion show. And I said, no. I barely have enough time to get all my girls out there. You know, I'm not going to add three more, for goodness sake. What are you talking about? Well, no, we promised him. I don't care what you promised. Go unpromised. And he said, well, um, and I said, look, who is this big Hollywood producer? And he said, Gene Roddenberry. And I said, I never heard of him. Go away. <laughs> so I'm still, you know, we're doing the rehearsal, and I'm thinking, oh, we'll never get We're also organizing the art show at the same time. So, you know. Yeah, it's... poor John was left with most of that. And... I'm suddenly addressed with, are you be Joe Trimble? I turn around and here's this big Irish mick of a guy, you know, and he says, can I take you for coffee? And I said, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, 20 minutes later, he talked his way into his the fashion show. However, part of that was contingent on his professional models he'd hired helping to be starters, getting people out from behind, you know, and, and on and off the stage. And they saw a good job going away, so over a weekend, holiday weekend. So they were pretty anxious to be, uh, you know, cooperative. And um, so we put up the three costumes, and the fans liked them. Oh, the fans liked them. And um, so Jean said, next time you're in Hollywood, call me, we'll do lunch. And I thought, yeah, yeah, you know. And uh, next time we were in Hollywood, John was an outside salesman. We uh, called him, and he invited us to lunch, which I thought was amazing. <laughs> so after that, uh, whenever we were we lived in Oakland at the time. So when after that, whenever we were down in L.A., we'd call and we'd be able to go over to the studio and actually watch some episodes, parts of episodes, you know, being filmed, and uh, met several of the actors and and uh, a bunch of the of the other people that you know are Cat, the responsible crew. for putting them on, and uh, so one we, in one particular time we were down, and the whole atmosphere had changed. The actors used to come off the, of a scene and they'd sit down and they were you know bantering back and forth and this sort of thing, and there was a lot of banter on the on the set anyway, and. This time, everybody just came back and sat. And it was really, you know, it was very strange. <clears throat> and I remarked on it to, to B. Joe, and she says, well, I'll tell you, let's go ask craft services. They always know what's going on. <laughs> <clears throat> so we went over, and she went over and asked the person in craft services, and he says, oh, he says, uh, the word's not official yet, but it's come down through the grapevine. It's going to be canceled after this season. Oh. And... We, we, you know, were a little upset by that. But we had to leave. So we're, we're in the car driving up the valley to get back to Oakland. And I said to her, that was really sad about them, you know, the, the difference in the, in the people on the, on the set and the actors and so on. It's really a shame it's going to be canceled. There ought to be something we could do about that. No, I should know better than to say that. <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, let's let's think about that." So all the way back home, 
we uh, we discussed how ways and means it could be done. Now we had never ever even talked to anyone who'd ever run a mail campaign. We had no clue how to really start, except that we knew a lot of people who had mailing lists. Hey, and. We get back to Oakland, and I said, we need to call Gene, because if he's given up, if he's thrown in the towel, there's no sense in doing this. And when we called, he said he had just come out of a meeting with his staff where he said that there ought to be some way we could reach the fans. And we fell in his lap. Well, there we are. <laughs> and so the first thing we decided was that he could not have anything to do with it, because NBC, well, NBC blamed him anyway, but... Uh, the the NBC and the studio were both going to be very sure that he had organized it, so he couldn't he couldn't you know now he did sort of he snuck around and played through a couple a, a couple of things like the UCLA um, um, I mean the uh, Caltech march and so on, but uh, by and large you know we did it on our own. The fans that we contacted were amazing, and they just they we organized the rule of ten. You write a letter, you ask 10 people to write a letter. They write a letter, they ask 10 people to write a letter. Now, today with computer, we had to do this all by by writing letters. Analog, today, not digital. Yeah. yeah. Today's <laughs> computers, you don't have to do that. You could write a, write a letter, hit a button, and reach a couple of thousand people who would each do it and so on and so forth. That, pardon me, that works just great. But in those days, and we, of course... We didn't have any feedback, so we had no idea how <laughs> how successful this was going. Yeah, no return receipt on yeah, your exactly. letter. That's it. And we, but we got the mailing list of the convention. We got mailing list of one of the largest of the book dealers of the time, and then we said to Jean, "Well, how about some addresses from the fan mail?" And Jean said, "I, I've never seen any fan mail." And what? Said, he, just because he didn't what? see it doesn't mean it was yeah, and we wasn't said, coming in. Oh, there's got to be there's got to be fan mail. So he called the mailroom at, at you know Paramount and said, uh, "Do we have any fan mail?" And they said, "Yeah, would you send somebody over to get the the twenty five or thirty bags of it that are sitting here?" <gasps> no one had ever picked it up, <laughs> and no one had ever told him. No, no, no. no. So they had no idea that Star Trek was, frankly, as successful as it really was. Now, we all know by now that all the numbers of the, what was that company? Nielsen. The, the Nielsen Nielsen's numbers are rigged. Fake. They're rigged. So, you know, and, and uh-huh. uh, that they were based on false premises in the first place. So what was really happening was that NBC wanted rid of Star Trek because... It was, a, it was a it was a it was a crazy show, and Roddenberry was frankly a loose cannon, <laughs> and so uh, they 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 wanted the numbers to come out right. That's just it's as you know simple as that. So we happily set about without knowing this, upsetting their little apple cart, and we got a list of addresses of people who were responsible in NBC. And then I did a little research, and I said, now, take down the names of all of the sponsors in your area. There will be a few that are national, but the rest of them will be local. They're going to really hate getting mail 
saying, gosh, we just found out that Star Trek's about to be canceled, and we're kind of unhappy about this. Is there something you can do about it? Because they're going to be calling NBC and saying, why am I paying good money to have fans yelling at me? (laughs) No threats, no threats, no saying you'll never buy the product, just that... Expressing unhappiness. And um, I, I talked to secretaries to find out what kind of letters... Uh, they answered what kind of letters they filed in the nut file, what kind of letters were important enough to go across the desk of their boss. So we put out a little list of things to do. To do and not to do. Mail everything in a business envelope. If you had a, a right to a, a, a business address or a letterhead. letterhead of any kind, use it. And they had to open all the mail. Because they couldn't risk having one of those letters be something important to their business. It cost them a lot of money. (laughs) We had several people who were off, you know, were at some level administrators or officers of, of companies who got on the thing and said, is it okay if I put this through the company newsletter and Oh, sure. <laughs> Mensa put it through their newsletter. All right. <laughs> uh, Kodak. Kodak and, yeah. and somebody found out all of oh, the Polaroid holding too. companies for NBC. Ooh. Yeah, and sent us the list of addresses, which we promptly sent out. <laughs> <laughs> and the holding companies got letters. now. And I said, no threatening letters. We don't want to end up in that nut file, and we don't <clears> want to be shown to the newspaper as a pack of raving idiots. So we have to sound rational. And people would say, well, sh- you know, write a letter for us. No, you write a letter. Yeah. And and you have to, it, we can't make it sound like, you know, a, a planned thing. And uh, to our great surprise, it worked. NBC came on on a voiceover and said, basically, it's been picked up for a third season and don't send any more mail. We let Gene play in on a few things. He uh-huh. he had a bunch of bumper stickers made up that said things like I grok Spock mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Knowing the word grok impresses uh, yeah. Was this through uh, Lincoln Enterprises? And the, it, it, he hadn't done Lincoln had, Enterprises Lincoln yet. In, yeah, this was yeah. an idea that he, he was thinking about but it hadn't been done yet. And um, so he made up a bunch of bumper stickers, and he 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 gave us a bunch, and we sent them out to to people. And uh, in San Francisco, we lived in the still lived yeah what at at the very beginnings of this in the Bay Area. And he sent us some of these bumper stickers, and we did a protest at the KRON, which is the NBC affiliate in in uh, in San Francisco. And a bunch of us in. in <laughs> we had no Star Trek outfits, so, so we, we were dressed our- up in medieval costumes since we were all members <laughs> of the SCA. <clears throat> and uh, you uh, go with what you got. I'm that's sure it. they wore that on Star and, Trek at uh, some point. Some point, yeah. yeah. That's the uh, they locked the doors at a station, of course. <laughs> and, of course, uh, we of course. shoved a couple of bumper stickers through the door, and a couple of secretaries took them, and mm. you know, and uh, the. San Francisco police showed up, and um, wow. this was the hippie days. So yeah. who knows? We might have been a yeah. riot. And so we uh, we handed them to a couple of cops, 
And they put them on their patrol car. <laughs> <laughs> And Can't then, beat them, oh, join them. Oh, Partway through awesome. this whole thing, uh, Gene thought of the idea of sending a fan to New York to get into the NBC corporate headquarters parking lot. Nah. And and into the corporate headquarters Anybody and passing know? stuff out. Yes, as a matter uh, of fact, a uh, uh, girl named Wanda Kendall, <laughs> yes. who looked in, in a, she made a Wonder Woman costume. She looked more like Wonder Woman than than. Uh, Ooh, she certainly did. Yes, she did. I'll show you pictures later. Gorgeous. I'll have to see that. Very pretty girl. And so she went back there, and uh, she got into NBC by the simple expediency of going around to the uh, executive entrance, standing there at the gate, and when a car pulled up, waiting for the gate to open, she opened the back door, stepped in, sat down next to the executive and said, Hi, do you mind if I hitch a ride? Wow. Now, it was a ride of only a couple of hundred yards, but he didn't care. <laughs> I mean, a beautiful, slender girl, black-haired, in a, black, in a red short, red velvet dress. <laughs> Would you throw her out? And what she was in, she just went through all the offices and left off uh, flying. Well, and she went and put bumper stickers on a bunch of the... A bunch of cars. cars. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Little subversive action. Uh-huh. What's Grok? Oh, that's a, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So uh, and and Gene did finally. Um, he showed up at the uh, at the Caltech march on uh, on uh, uh, NBC NBC here, and of course just had to play through. He don't, he he was at, well. Producers are control freaks, all right. And he was going crazy because we weren't letting him do any controlling. <laughs> well, he showed up. He didn't. He well, didn't actually he stand no, out oh, in the march, but he did. He rode his his motorcycle over, and mm-hmm. was dressed in in black leathers with a, a helmet, black helmet with a with a dark. Pfizer Pfizer. So mm-hmm. nobody could really tell who he was. <laughs> Although a whole lot of people claim they did recognize him. Yeah, yeah. one would like to think. Well, sure, you know, you you know, and of course now, almost fifty years later, uh, most of all, what has happened is now urban legend, and how much of it is true and how much of it isn't is is rests with whoever's telling you the story. This is why we asked you. <laughs> well, my one of my funniest things was we were at a convention in Vancouver, and this young man who couldn't be a day over thirty five comes up and he says, you know. I understand you're from Southern California. I wasn't wearing my badge as usual. And he, um, and he starts talking to me. And he obviously had no idea who I was. And he says, you know, those trimbles have stolen all my thunder because I was the one who organized the Save Star Trek campaign. Really? And I went, really? No kidding. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I could be famous down there now, possibly have a career and everything. But, you know, here they are just, uh, you know, and I said, wow. So you must have run the campaign when you were about, what, seven? <laughs> and, of course, then somebody came along and spoiled it and said, hi, B. Joe. And he just turned red and walked away. <laughs> yeah, that's all you can There's do. so much for revisionist history, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So, and, and, you know, people sometimes ask us, you know, uh, how rich we became over this. Yeah. We didn't. I mean, first, as uh, you well know, gratitude is an optional extra in Hollywood. And nobody gave us any extra money at all. Uh, but our, frankly, we consider ourselves very wealthy. And I know this is going to sop- sound soppy and sentimental, but we have met fans from all over the world. 
and they have we we've become friends with many of them mm-hmm. and they're so neat they're just such wonderful people yeah i mean are there a few nerdies here and there sure you know it, it, mm-hmm. that's you know it's but by and large they're very wonderful they're mm-hmm. very generous <clears throat> because of all this we've been to to england to conventions probably a dozen times mm-hmm, maybe yeah uh we've been to germany at least four times been to uh, German fans are so great. Yeah. Been oh, to I the Czech Republic. Um, we, been we, to, we palled around with the Czech fans for yeah. a while. They, oh, they came to visit. Did they? Been, oh, been to Canada. Been to uh, to Japan. Been to Australia uh, and Australia New and New Zealand. Um, you know, yeah. all because of Star Trek. As a matter of fact, Susan and I met at a meeting of the Star Trek Association for Revival in Burbank in the mid seventies. Oh uh, my god! If, if if you hadn't done what you did, we never would have met, and we wouldn't be sitting here now recording this. And happily ever after. Yeah, there, I, uh, you know something that's kind that's fun, and that's the lovely thing about it. At at one very large convention. I went out and there we were bridging a little while because something wasn't ready. And I said, you know, just out of curiosity, I want to know how many of you, stand up if you have, met and married in Star Trek fandom? And a huge number of them. And I said, okay, those who met and married from meeting at an Equicon, which is the conventions we used to run, I want you to stay standing, the rest of you sit down. And less than half of those people sat down. <laughs> it was really kind of, you know, you know when oh, they right. say that fans are losers and can't get girls, uh oh, mm-hmm. baby. Oh, no. What happened at Equicon stayed at Equicon. <laughs> Equicon was my first science fiction convention of any kind. Oh, cool. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I think a lot cool. of us of our generation can say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. you know, Isaac Asimov, uh, 1966, 67, 68 was when the female contingent of of conventions of science fiction exploded. Mm-hmm. Um, some people attribute that to Star Trek. Frankly, I don't think so. I think it was attributable to the to the. I think explosion. the women's movement at the time had the as women, much to do the with women's it. movement and the explosion in tech stuff because of the space program. Yeah, uh, caused an awful lot of that, and women decided it was they could they could. They didn't have to play dumb anymore. <laughs> they yeah, could come out and be goodness. intelligent people. But the the this explosion of people. So <laughs> we're at a at a banquet. Isaac Asimov is the Toastmaster, and he says, "So he says, at all these conventions, he says there's a there's a key word that'll that'll bring it back to you. Room seven seventy. Uh, you know, then he coming up with several of these things that were the sort of things that happened that would always recall that convention to people. And he said, I think I know what the convention, the, the key word is for this convention. Girls! <laughs> <laughs> Which is so Ike. Yeah. By, by the way, Isaac Asimov, uh, something like, like, like four degrees and so on, uh, was a, an avid Star Trek fan. And ah. I loved pointing that out to people. And one of the things, by the way, that drove NBC <clears throat> a little crazy was that, you know, in those days, you didn't have big computers even in your own company. You sent them out to this one big place that had these gigantic computers. They were trying to analyze the letters 
and find and come up with the definitive Star Trek fan. Oh, good as luck. As a fourteen-year-old girl in glasses, it was yeah. me. Yeah, okay. no, <laughs> but, you know, I've always <laughs> loved cake. that because, come on, when you really think about it, it was Catherine, a mentally handicapped adult with an eight-year-old, uh, you know, about an eight-year-old uh, intelligence, and Isaac Asimov with four degrees. <laughs> Uh-huh. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, and a grandmother is, from it ran uh, the gamut. It just did in, in was, Massachusetts. You know. I think. Yeah. I mean, you just you could not come up with that definitive. And of course, for them, because they had these nice little labels already for us, uh, uh, it drove them crazy. No, because they couldn't make a demographic out of it. I know. At yeah. all. No, and they never did, and they never knew quite how to sell Star Trek because of that. Hmm. They never really quite understood it. That was kind of strange. But the the reason that I got so much notice, rather than John, which is driven me crazy all these years, <laughs> because they were the lady who started trying. No, no, no. The two people who stayed saved Star Trek was well with us. I'm a big advocate of John's. I think that you know we should have the John fan club. Absolutely. uh, uh, No, not we won't call it that. You know what that's going to bring up. (laughs) But the reason all of that happened was that that it was the year really 1967 or so that feminism was just getting really started Mm -hmm. and. I was more interesting to the news media as the little woman who spoke up than John was because he was middle management at that point in life and, you know, who wants to talk to a businessman. So basically, that's what really happened. Well, and, and that, and coupled with the fact that the difference in our, in our names, every Tom, Dick, and Harry's name is John. How many people do you know named B. Joe? Where well, did that funny. come from anyway? <laughs> Everyone asks me, and I, I okay. seem to remember a story, but, but I want I, it from I, you. I, yeah, I um, uh, had one, enough money for one semester of art school. And back when Chenard's was downtown... L.A., I signed up there, and we had in one class a Barbara Jean, a Betty Jean, and me, Betty Joe. And so we became very quickly B.J., Beej, and B. Joe. Uh-huh. And I liked it so well, and I just started signing my art with it, and then I thought, you know, all my life I'd heard my dear loving Southern relatives going, Betty Joanne, and that's hard to do with a B. Joe. So I just basically kept the name. And it's on my driver's license. Good for you. <laughs> well, that's awesome. What a great story. <laughs> but, you know, it was actually one of my first real steps into doing things sort of my way in that sense, you know. Imagine what she would have been like, you know, with two semesters of art school. <laughs> She's pretty good with one. <laughs> no. No, I, 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 but uh, then, you know, John and I met. And, Under uh, Forey Ackerman's piano. Yeah. Okay. There's sure. worse places. There's a story. Well, the, it There's was a, a baby story. grant, so we couldn't have too many people under it. But yeah. Forey threw these big three day birthday parties. Mm. And theoretically, he was such an innocent. You were supposed to come on only the day you were invited, and then there would be other people on each subsequent days because you had a lot of friends. Well, of course, the people invited for the first day would come to the second day and the third day to see who was there. Of course. Because for a, I mean, you might be standing next to um, Christopher Plummer, for goodness sake, you know. And Uh so, but it was so crowded, and Forey never bothered with chairs. So, 
There was furniture in the room, yeah. but there weren't a lot of extra but chairs around. But you couldn't sit down because somebody would step on you. So a couple of friends had snaffled a bowl of chips and climbed under the piano. And some dip. <laughs> That's one and way so, not to get stepped on. Yeah. yeah, and I joined them. And then John, who had just come in from, he was still in the Air Force, joined us. And we sat there and... Well, I knew two of the other people under yeah. there, so, you know. And what, and John and I, because I'd been in the Navy, John and I sat around exchanging stupid officer stories. And <laughs> when he left, I thought, he's a pretty funny guy. And if you can't have a guy with a sense of humor, then don't bother. Here, here. Because, you know, looks and, you know, not even money is that much, worth that much. So, uh, yeah. So, anyway, the upshot of it was that... Some fifty, almost fifty-five years ago. Now we married. That's excellent. That's wonder- that is that is heartwarming and yeah. uh, uh, encouraging. Yes, <laughs> we, we have three daughters. One's a foster daughter. Mm-hmm. We borrowed her and never gave her back. And uh, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, let's see. Sixty-six was when the first episode when, uh, when the first episode aired. First episode aired September eighth. So 67, and then... Um, 67 would have started the second season. It would be... six. The third season aired uh, September 68 to s- spring of 69, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, once it was uh, resuscitated, uh, uh-huh. uh, it, it only ran one more season. Yeah. And uh, what was it like towards the end of that season? Was there... Uh, Okay, uh, when we found out it was going to be renewed and they you know, so on, NBC wanted to make some changes. They didn't want Roddenberry in direct control anymore. So they got together with Paramount and they brought in... Uh, Fred Freiberger. Yeah, Fred Freiberger. Who had never seen an, uh, a Star Trek episode. Who had been doing stuff in Europe. And they brought in Arthur Singer instead of Dorothy Fontana to be this, the story editor. And we knew there was going to be trouble right There's when, the when we met him. Because Arthur Singer was one of these guys with a shirt open down the, to the middle of his chest and about six or seven gold chains oh, around his neck. Yeah. Yes, and just one of those guys, you know, oh, oily. Boy. He's and that his, guy. And his idea was that everything, uh, oh, Fred Freiberger said, uh, watched several episodes and then said, this is not a comedy, this is a drama. And and Singer just went along with this and just started making it darker and more stupid as he went along. Now, <sighs> the, there was a rumor for a long time that there had been a fourth season of Star Trek. And the reason for that r- rumor is that Eisenhower died just before the, uh, just at the end of the second season, or no, at the beginning of the third season, right? right? No, at the end of the third season when they were going to be showing the. Uh, That's right. The la- the Turnabout last- Intruder did not get shown in the regular season. Oh, they got shown at the beginning of the rerun season. Now, frankly, it probably cost Shatner an Emmy nomination because that was probably his best acting in the whole show. Because hmm. <laughs> he's playing a different person. Yeah, for, yes, yeah, and, and, he, and he had all of the without without doing a drag queen routine. He had all of the feminine gestures to you know that little smoothing down the back of your mm-hmm. skirt when you sit down, that kind of thing, uh, and just that little glance at a mirror. Not doing cute, but just that little glance. Mm-hmm. He was he was good at that, and but the show was shown too late to qualify. Oh, that's right. It would have been shown like after January. Yeah, and the fans 
therefore a new a new episode. This was obviously the beginning of a fourth season. No matter what anybody said, that was what they decided. And there's still rumors about the hidden fourth season that's never been shown. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wish. Yeah, never yeah. mind. I never think mind that would have been unearthed by now, and yeah. probably yeah. by Mark Cushman. You know? Oh, probably. Those, I, those books are kind of brilliant, and I'm, I'm very interested in. Uh, and it uh, it never ceases to amaze me exactly how much suspension of disbelief Star Trek fans will engage in, in order to believe whatever particular yeah. well, rumor they want. They to believe, believe that a man with no emotions could fall in love with them. Okay, yeah. get get you yeah. Know, yeah. Let's, yeah. Talk, yeah. let's talk about science. this. This, was, Star some, Trek this was something brilliant that uh, yeah, I think Dorothy Fontana gets almost all the credit for. Jean saw. And in fact, the original description of a devilish-looking alien. Oh, he well, was supposed to be red skinned. That's what you know, yeah. He was that, supposed to have red skin originally, yeah. and that didn't work. Uh, and for one thing, it didn't photograph at all well in black and white. Well, really. no, it looked, no. Looked, so, would have looked like he was in blackface. Yes, yeah. and and this, but you know, the really attenuated eyebrows and his getting very excited there in the first uh, couple of episodes. And when Dorothy came on board. She saw him as this calm, very almost excruciatingly contained man. It had an interesting side effect that not anybody could predict, which was that the kids saw it as someone who had learned to control his rages and his temper. Just like every adolescent needs to do. And women saw it as, well, you may think you're cold, but I could warm you up, chicky. And, you know, I mean, it was real. We'd get letters when John and I answered fan mail for a little while after the Safe Start Trick campaign. And because they realized, hello, there was a lot of mail to answer. And we'd get letters that would start out, I'm a happily married woman, dot, dot, dot. Now, first, who asked? <laughs> you know? So when people lead Obviously in like that... some guilt going on. There. Yes. So I love the one letter. And when I finished laughing, I shared it with John. This woman wrote in, and she pointed out that we with, with uh, iron-based iron. blood have red. Uh, it's red. And therefore, all of our extremities are red. Spock has copper-based blood, so are all of his extremities, all of his extremities, green. Oh. Yes. <laughs> That's a rather personal question. Yeah. Um, I well, washed his mouth out with, you know. Uh, well, and then we'd get, we get. Imagine the continuity issues there. We got one letter from somebody, poor little thing, who said, well, now that the show's been canceled, What's Mr. Nimoy going to do now? Because his ears are pointed. And he won't be able to do anything. Oh, gosh. Oh, Lord love her. Oh, poor little guy. <laughs> I, we, love, I love she, my... She wrote him a letter back yeah. that patiently Tried explained to explain that, it. that was, yeah. I, 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 my favorite were the kids, though. One little boy wrote in and he says, can I have a working phaser? <laughs> P.S. If my kid brother asks for one, don't give him one. <laughs> 
Oh, no, the shoe is on the other foot, though, now, yeah. because uh, uh, do-it-yourself hackers yeah. have actually created working phasers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Unfortunately, yeah. Nobody's vaporizing with, with actual, anybody yet. Well, n- yet. they're not vaporizing people, but they're certainly they're certainly powerful enough to put burn marks in the wall and the, pop balloons. And, the famous oh, uh, yeah. sign in the laser actually, lab, do not look into laser with, with remaining, remaining eye. eye. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, yes, yes. But they're, they've actually put real real lasers into these things and, yeah. and they're making is, real yeah. working they're, prob- they're probably just getting their amusing their cats with quite, them. Quite, yeah. quite amazing. Oh. But you know, when you look at how much has happened, that was predicted by Star Trek. Oh yes. Uh, and, and, and we, uh, we had a friend a while back and, and severe heart problems ended up in the hospital and I, every time he'd move, I'd hear a ping out in the main office, which was a, a circular section where all the, the the beds were sort of spokes from there. Mm-hmm. And so I went out to see what it was. It was basically the medical monitor in from the spaceship, but of course on a computer. Monitoring, <clears throat> each monitor was for a different bed. And if he moved, if he shifted a good bulk of his body... It registered, and they came in to find out what was wrong. Mm. And I'm thinking, dang, that is just so great. That is some Star Trek. <laughs> and it really is, because this is the kind of thing. They, they actually have uh, needleless uh, 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 syringes, but oh, yes, hurt. The- because they're now forcing well, all these little molecules through your skin. Well, um, and I've actually, when I was uh, uh, in sixth grade, I, I got a... Uh, uh, I think it was a flu shot or something or some sort of inoculation using one of those things. And it did not hurt anywhere near as much as a needle did. Really? Yeah. It was just like a sudden pop and you go, ow, you know, but it wasn't as bad as a needle. Not anywhere near as bad. The the only two people I've ever met who had, uh, besides you, who've uh, had them said that it hurt very much. So really, yeah. It depends on your pain level, I guess. Yeah. It just, it was a, it, it was a sudden pop and then that was it. How cool. Uh, you know, got beat up more than they did, I guess. Well, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, there are a couple of different types. There's the there's the one that looks like it, uh, you know, they attach it to a compressor, and it looks like a, a, something you'd spray a car with. And then the USC Medical Center uh, developed one where you put a cart. It, was, it looked yeah, more like Dr. McCoy's thing, yeah. injector, and it had a, a cartridge not on the end of the... Uh, not on the end of the stock, but actually in, inside, like a, like a, uh, a, a, a cartridge, and it worked, uh, by hand action. And, uh, cool. yeah, so it's been, the, the his injector has actually been created I love a few times. These things. I just yeah. love them. I just think that, that, you know, this is the kind of thing that, that, uh, you know, when you're sort of expostulating what's going to happen in the future, it's kind of nice to have see things like this as you go along become a reality. Well, I think we've outstripped uh, Star Trek in, oh, in a number of yeah. ways. I mean, yeah. flip phones, yeah, my, that is so last century. My, yeah, no, my cell yes. phone has more computing power and more capability than... Uh, than a tri, uh, you know, next gen Star Trek, the next generation tricorder ever would have. Yeah. yeah, well, and you know that's, but this is this is happening with, frankly, a lot of the science fiction uh, and science fantasy type of uh, of shows where you can come up with a box that with a lot of winky blinkies on it and say it's going to do something and have someone. Now, Say what a good idea, and yeah. do it. <laughs> and especially since most of these people are now 
longtime science fiction fans, and and they they're now they're sitting there going, hey, and I love that because this is what I you know what what I have saw <coughs> saw out of science fiction when I just as a farm girl I discovered science fiction. Mm-hmm. Started out with iRobot by Isaac Asimov. That's a I good didn't, beginning. I didn't even know what a robot was. Ooh. <laughs> well, I guess you learn. I mean, nobody told me that all those little twinkly things up in the night sky were, were actually places you could go to. And I had to learn that. Wow. So I credit science fiction with a lot of my, really, my education in that well, sense. It's a good thing they had good science in them, at yeah. least, you know, as good as it got at the time. Caltech, by the way, the one one of the guys uh, invited Gene Roddenberry over to share a lounge, you know, Caltech lounge viewing of Star Trek and Gene says, I don't think I could stand up to these guys' science. <laughs> They're going to ask questions. And now all of these you years later dance. with, with uh, the, the Big Bang Theory, <laughs> you know. I am, I am not a fan of Big Bang Theory. Oh, I, I, think know, it's, I think it's nerd face, frankly. And of I, course I, it is. Uh, but, I'm just not finding it amusing. But I dated Caltech yeah, a lot of people do. And I have to say that, um, yeah, they haven't changed a lot in all of, since. These guys are too ago. cute for one thing. Well, they're way too cute. But, you know, <laughs> that's, you know. And uh, yes, I dated uh, Sheldon Cooper. And, mm. uh, once. Once he took me back and he said, Am I good? Are we going to do this again? And I said, No, honey, I'd kill you. <laughs> that's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he understood, but that's okay, you know. So well, and that was kind of the point, wasn't it? Yes, that's it. Yeah, no, but uh, there. I think too, you have to kind of either be a total nerd or in or be a total nerd like me and and know the culture. Well, there know? were a bunch. There was a whole small coterie of science fiction fans in the in the sixties who were uh, students at Caltech that we hung around with. So we're much more immersed in the Caltech milieu, as mm-hmm. it were, than than the average fan. With the result that that uh, the Big Bang Theory rings very true in many ways. <laughs> no, it's well, certainly consider your counsel true. in this matter. Yeah, it's a, a Star Trek. You mentioned a moment ago Star Trek culture, yeah. and. Uh, uh, the fact that we have a culture. Yeah, the fact that we have <laughs> just a, a, a culture that we can call Star Trek culture, I think, says a great deal about it. Yeah, People yeah. trying to set up a, well, a war between Star Trek culture and Star oh, Wars well, culture. But, and, you know, that's, which is nonsense. That is utter nonsense. It's sort of the same thing as saying, uh, you know, what's better, uh, Star Trek or Firefly? Well, this is, you know, this is apples and aardvarks. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And... There's no reason in the world why you can't enjoy them all. And by the way, each one has their own sort of little culture. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'm most proud of about Star Trek fandom, uh, and we consider ourselves fans of several shows, but sure. of Star Trek fandom is that they started out, their first conventions had a charity. This made Gene very proud, by the way. And let me help. Mm-hmm. From the Guardian of Forever, uh, City on the Edge of Forever, was basically the 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 catchword, uh, catchphrase, um, and they've had charity auctions and raffles at almost every one of their events. 
and well, not counting the one we mentioned earlier. But the thing is that well, not the commercial conventions, but yeah. certainly yeah. the uh, the fan the run fan, every fan run convention has. And we we and been, it's not just Star yeah. Trek. It's yeah. it's. We've enjoyed no. They they all do to a, a degree or another. The the uh, Heinlein blood drives. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, and that was an interesting one that uh, got started because Heinlein was actually he'd had an operation, super simple one, and but he had a rare blood type. He had not a rare blood type. He had a rare antigen in his blood, oh, yeah. and whoever heard of that? And they kept giving him transfusions of the right blood type for him, and he was still. You know, and finally, somebody, some big specialist, did something and discovered that of the assorted antigens in your blood, and I couldn't even explain what those are. Um, he had a very rare one, and so the blood drives were technically both to, of course, support the blood drive, but also to locate people who had that antigen, because he mm. wasn't the only person who had this problem. <clears throat> And many people had died because nobody knew how to treat this. And so now they have a database of at, at most hospitals now, most blood banks, of this particular antigen problem and who has that kind of blood. And it originated with the Star Trek fans. Yeah, and that's yeah. just science a, that's amazing. Yeah, science, science fiction fans. Science that's fiction amazing. Writer. Isn't that amazing? And this is the thing. You don't know when something starts out just how far-reaching something can be. And I love that, you know? I mean, uh, uh, to me... The world is so full of unkindness that it kind of depresses me sometimes. And it's it's nice to see people doing something good for other people. And the power that fans have with the Internet now, sorry, with the Internet is utterly amazing. Because, well, look at the um, Kickstarter type of things now, where mm-hmm. you can suddenly get some money for... Something really serious. I mean, yes, a lot of trivial things, too. That's okay. But something really serious that can be within 24 hours. You've got more than enough money to do whatever it was that needed to be done. From people you'll never hear from again. That's an enormous amount of power. I love that. I mean, when many, many years ago now... Someone who worked at JPL, I can't name names here because he's still working there, called me and said, the Pluto project is about to be canceled. There's always these Luddites in Congress who... Of course, you know, and they're in there now. And, trying to yes, help. and they're still there. Um, but if we cancel this now, first it puts about 10, 12 years of our work down the tubes, but also... Our next chance to get Pluto, to reach Pluto at all, is going to be about 180 years from now. Well, it goes on this huge uh, orbit. And could you help? And I said, well, let's see if I can. So did a little letter, got all the facts, did a little letter, put it on the computer. I was in bed with a cold, so I had my little laptop. And... (laughs) I said, the furthest person from the Los Angeles area that gets this, email me back. Okay, just an experiment. Mm-hmm. 
called up all the Star Trek fan clubs I had on my email list, called up several other friends, called up everybody I could think of, pushed one button, and did more then than we could do in three weekends of in, the letter in writing 1967 campaign. and 68, yeah. My goodness. And within about two and a half hours, I got my first email from South Africa. That's about <laughs> yes. the right latitude and longitude. Yes. And I, on got the one, side. I got one from the furthest uh, 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 Dunedin from uh, Dunedin uh, um, in, uh, New Zealand which is mm-hmm. you know you can see Antarctica from there on a good day and all over the world I was getting emails <laughs> you know, including of course the ones saying hi I'm still from Los Angeles but I wanted to say hi anyway <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh-huh. but, but it was amazing within the next four or five days we heard from hundreds of people and guess what, you know? And I said, well, in this case, on the, in the letter, I said, if, you know, contact your Congress critter and point out that you're a voter. Except the guy in New Zealand, I don't think. Well, no, but, well, no. <laughs> but yes, but here's the thing. They hate to find out that the world is watching. Uh-huh. You see, oh, that's yeah. oh, what yeah. makes it valuable. They hate to find and, out. Um, you know, and, uh, and we're about to um, uh, get some good shots of Pluto. I think it's going to come up. In, is it June or July? I think yeah, so. Yeah, we have and, soon. Um, <laughs> they've just. Uh, we're uh, watching the series probe ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, the dawn, the dawn probe yeah. approaching yeah. in orbit around Ceres right now. Yay! Scanning, yes, yes. doing a visual scan yeah. and uh, geological scans of the. It's the about largest. to lower the altitude that it's orbiting. Oh. We're we're we writing, a, a, yeah. you know, a, a radio play about. Are you? About it's called Halfway Home: Adventures in the Asteroid Belt, and the bright spots look like a landing I base s- to us. <laughs> I think maybe they're already there. In the right configuration. I well, I, I, it looks sort, I sort of feel us. like like maybe maybe uh, John and I were were sort of godparents to this Pluto uh, yeah shot. So, but. Well, the and thing I, is that anyone have, can do this. That's, that's what true. it is. In particular, you did this, and uh, uh, I don't think <laughs> you did it. And it wouldn't, I don't think it would have had the weight uh, that it had if you, had, if you hadn't been the one to do it. Uh, the response possible. that you the response that you got i think uh, was probably due in part because of who you are well i think i think that's valid on the one point not because we're well famous. not because you're you're su- well you're but kind of superheroes but yeah, but <laughs> but you have a, a doggedness and persistence and an ability to network before yeah. network was a verb well yeah. i think i think more importantly than that is that we have a validity mhm if we say something is so or not so, people believe us now. And they might if, you know, uh, Joe Smith set up a campaign, want to go check on who this person is and if this is a valid uh, reason and so on and so forth. And that might slow down the campaign considerably. So we've spent many years building up a validity uh, that in, frankly, we've followed most of our lives. Uh, I very, very seldom say something I don't mean. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. And if people. Why bother? You know? <laughs> yeah. And if people bug me really, really badly, I'm perfectly happy to say, go away. 
because mm-hmm. life's too short to put up with that. And people go, well, you're not going to make many friends. Possibly not. But the ones I do make are going to be good ones. Indeed. You know? And I haven't wasted my time with a whole bunch of people who are driving me crazy. And this is, this is, I think, and John does the same thing, by the way. He just does it quieter and far more <laughs> diplomatically than I do. But, uh, you do. But really, uh, because of this, people tend to believe us when we tell them that something needs to be done. And you are, as a result of that, you are, uh, uh, you, created a keystone event in the timeline for Star Trek, uh, without which the rest of it would probably not exist. Yeah, if it hadn't been syndicated and, you know, hadn't had the third season and gone into syndication, it would have died right then and there. And then we wouldn't have had the the dinner time ritual five days a week, six o'clock. Mom just had to deal with it. And then, uh, you know, Gene couldn't, couldn't get Anything from from uh, Paramount, they were they wouldn't return his calls or anything like that. And then Star Wars came out, the first. Well, that know, changed yeah. everything and, for science fiction people. The, Suddenly, it was profitable. The chairman of Gulf and Western, which owned Paramount at the mm-hmm. time, was on the corporate jet somewhere, and he called the president of Paramount and said. This Star Wars thing is pretty big. Don't we own something like that? And suddenly, Gene well, was getting his calls yeah. returned. Aha! <laughs> so uh, that led to the movies, and that led to Star Trek: The, the Next Generation. Yeah, the next which gen. He, he he and to everything that came out. He started that, but he started well, that one. But, yeah, uh, and then he got very ill. But you know, there was uh-huh. there was that wonderful moment when we were taken by Gene over to. Um, the stage where the Next Generation Ridge set was being built. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it was mostly completed. And so when he walked in, of course, the people working there saw it, and they flipped all the lights to turn everything on. And we're standing in the middle of this wonderful bridge set, and he says, for what this set alone cost... What a season I could have given you in the 1960s. Oh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I just, that's the way. And he said, but it's not given to many people to have this kind of chance again. And he was so pleased. He really was. By the way, a, a cart ride, an electric cart ride with Gene across the Paramount lot is an experience. It was warp zillion all the way. And the art department, <clears throat> Michael Kuda, and that bunch made up a whole bunch of little people and cats, <clears throat> pardon me, and a few other carts. And they put them on the stickers side. Stickers on the side. Stickers yeah. on the side of his cart. And the other carts were, turned, were on their side. <laughs> How many of them made? Uh, he those got are their kills. He right? got, he, yes, his, they're, they're his kills. He got a huge. Or uproar, not from the people, not from the cart drivers, but from the secretaries about the cats. Oh, <laughs> so they had to remove the cat stickers <laughs> to save the cat. No, no sense of humor at all. Well, you know, they—I have to say—they had worked hard enough, bless their hearts, to feed all of these stray cats, the feral cats that were all over the lot. Oh, I see. And well, you got to keep the cats, or you get rats. Yes, and, okay. and cockroaches and, and insects. You believe me? But uh, yeah, in fact, in fact, they found that out because. <clears throat> 
one person, the uh, executive, had all the cats rounded up and took them off to the pound. And a week later, they, you know, rats were literally running across floors. And so they... Uh, they, they brought the they cats. Had to they go went out and, and sprang a bunch of cats. Yeah, they had, they had to pay for these cats too, you know, oh, and turn well, them loose. But yeah. Disney, Disney tried to do the same thing with with Disneyland and discovered the same problem. So that's why there are feral cats at Disneyland. You don't see them during the day, but if you're there after hours, <laughs> your kid will stop. You know, anywhere, anytime in in Disneyland, you know, no matter what else is going on, to go pet the cat yeah. or yes, the kitty yeah. or yeah. ducks or the baby ducks, baby yeah. ducks. It'll stop traffic every time. Yeah. You know, all these wonders, millions of dollars worth of wonders, and a baby duck walking across the path will stop traffic. <laughs> so you've given us quite a legacy. Well, and, thank uh, you. On behalf of Star Trek fans everywhere, thank, thank you. you. Well, thank well, you very much for thank you. You have just heard the 100th episode of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for May 16th, 2015. Our guests have been John and B. Joe Trimble, who in 1968, with the help of a great many Star Trek fans, saved Star Trek's third season from oblivion, and in so doing, changed the world. Your hosts have been Susan Fox and Gene Turnbow. If you are an author or other creator and would like to be on the show, contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at catcarter at kryptonradio.com. This episode will air again on May 17th, 2015 at 4 p.m. Pacific and at various additional times throughout the coming week. See the Krypton Radio website at kryptonradio.com for showtimes in your area. Once all the airtimes have passed, you will find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was played by Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry, and the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2015 by Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi. For your Wi-Fi.